This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Welcome to the Legislature Today. I'm Curtis Tate. In the House of Delegates, eight bills advanced from third reading to the Senate today. Two of the proposals help further protect the environment, and one takes telehealth a step further with a proactive technological approach to medical care. Randy Yowie has the story. The first environmental bill deals with recycling. House Bill 5006 relates to the administration of the A. James Mansion Rehabilitation Environmental Action Plan. The bill would help eliminate antiquated recycling goals and set new criteria. It would help curb the glut of waste tires that we see everywhere, help turn some of those tires into uses for construction projects, playground equipment, racetrack barriers, and more. Delegate Mark Zateslo, a Republican from Hancock County and vice chair of the House Energy Committee, says the bill sorts out recycling collection and post-material uses. The, the main issue in this bill is quantifying what gets recycled. And it's, 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 in, it's put in the bill because there are federal concerns about what you are doing with recycling and that type of thing. And we are trying to quantify it so that everybody is on the same page. And that may be, there may be federal money involved, but I'm not going to say that absolutely. House Bill 5006 passed with a 90 to 8 vote. Protecting water resources highlights the committee's substitute for House Bill 5045. The bill title, related to the administration of the West Virginia Water Pollution Control Act and underground carbon dioxide sequestration and storage. Zateslo says the bill offers state clean water assurances relating to federal EPA carbon sequestration requirements. We don't do much carbon sequestration, but this is basically just to tie in the federal water requirements for drinking water uh, into uh, a sequestration uh, scenario. Uh, just so that we're, we're covering all the bases. Typically, uh, what we do and how we sequester is deep, very deep. And I can tell you in West Virginia, very seldom do we have deep water that isn't already saline or isn't already impacted and really it doesn't come into play quite as much. House Bill 5045 passed with a 94 to 3 vote. House Bill 5310 would establish the Remote Patient Outcome Improvement Act. The bill allows for cost adjustment from the health provider or the insurer. If they believe that certain remote medical monitoring will lead to better health outcomes, there would be a reduction in cost to subscribe to that particular Internet service and get that underlying connectivity needed. Delegate Daniel Linville, Republican from Cabell County and chair of the House Technology and Infrastructure Committee, says the ability to remotely monitor a patient's vital signs can save money and lives. 
Everything from your, from your um, uh, glucometer, which tests your, your, your present blood, sh blood sugar. My uh, grandfather actually has a connected um, CPAP machine, which he wears at, at night. Um, everything from scales to even your Apple Watch, those sorts of things are all devices which can give data back to your doctor and see that you've got a trend that's, that's concerning and perhaps prevent an emergency room visit. That bill passed with a 95 to 2 vote. All now go on to the Senate. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. Today, the Senate passed and sent five bills to the House to be considered. The Senate advanced 12 other bills. Brianna Heaney has more. Some notable bills passed today include Senate Bill 466, which would require the State Board of Education to create an annual safety course curriculum about accessing technology for children and teenagers. The program would be in collaboration with law enforcement agencies, criminal justice agencies, and other organizations that deal with human trafficking and child online safety issues. The program would focus on safe and responsible use of social networking, including online messaging, the risks of transmitting personal information online, copyright laws, the importance of establishing open communication with adults like school counselors and teachers, and how to recognize and avoid suspicious or dangerous online communication or activities with cyberbullies and predators. Senator Laura Chapman, a Republican from Ohio County, says the bill is in place to protect children from things like sextortion, which is when a minor communicates with a predator in an illicit or sexual manner and then is later extorted. She says the bill is also open to pathways of communication between minors and resources to help them if they have been a victim of online predation or cyberbullying. This bill addresses bullying, online bullying, it addresses human trafficking, awareness. It addresses child pornography dissemination because oftentimes children don't realize when they take a nude photo of themselves and then send it to a love interest that they are actually committing um, dissemination of child pornography. This bill will just help children realize safe relationships, um, what to look out for if somebody's trying to exploit them, and just other really important things that children should know. I recently came across an issue where children would send nude photos to someone that they thought was a love interest and ended up being somebody who just wanted to extort them. And oftentimes those children would then commit suicide. And so I think people need to be aware of that, especially parents of children, and they need to be able to recognize that there is help if somebody does then threaten to disseminate those photos. Parents will have the option to opt children out of this training. Senate Bill 436 was passed today as well. The bill prohibits intentional motor vehicle emissions that create hazards. The bill does not specifically mention a practice called rolling coal, where drivers modify vehicles to emit thick black smoke, but would address the practice, which is already federally illegal. The bill passed. However, it received 10 nay votes. Senator Mark Maynard, a Republican from Wayne County, says he is worried the law is redundant and could create what he calls a nanny state. I don't want to see any unsafe conditions happen on our highways from the emission of smokes and smoke, and I don't want uh, pollution to happen. But uh, diesel engines sometimes, when put under a load, emit black smoke. And I know probably everyone here's seen it with farm tractors and uh, semi-trucks. And I think in our code, it's already covered through excessive smoke is not allowed. Um, I think it just puts us on the track to further becoming a, a nanny state, 
micromanaging what individuals do with their truck and kind of micromanages our law enforcement because I'm sure if someone uh, is causing a hazard on the highway, uh, you know, law enforcement could definitely pull them over because it's already in our code to prohibit excessive smoke. So I'm kind of uh, mixed on how I'm going to vote on this. Uh, it's a good uh, good intention, but I'm afraid it takes us down the path of micromanaging. So Maynard voted no on the bill. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Advocates and recovery experts filled the Capitol Rotunda on Monday to educate lawmakers about substance use disorder. Emily Rice has that story. Hundreds gathered at Recovery Day in the Capitol Rotunda. Nick Cochran is the director of Youth Services System, an organization that helps people in recovery reintegrate into society after incarceration or treatment at a rehab facility. We exclusively work with people who have a substance use disorder, um, but yes, also, I mean, recovery is a broad term because we also have to talk about reentry. The impacts of incarceration on the uh, people with SUD is massive. We see so many people incarcerated, um, and the process of deinstitutionalization after incarceration takes quite a while. In a partnership with Recovery Homes and Uplift West Virginia, Youth Services System displayed a memorial to the people in the state lost to overdose. Cochran said a big part of Recovery Day is to be a visible example for lawmakers to break down stigma. So we're inviting people to write the names of anyone lost to overdose on the bricks or to light a candle if they don't feel comfortable writing the name. Uh, but the candles are also representing somebody who we wish was in recovery or maybe somebody who used to be in recovery uh, or, or even people who are still in recovery and we just want to celebrate. Cochran said a big part of Recovery Day is to be a visible example for lawmakers to break down stigma. Substance use disorder is criminalized so heavily. Um, we really need additional supports in order to recover, in order to have treatment and to be rehabilitated so that we can become contributing members of society. So if I had anything to say to legislators, that's what it would be. You know, we're, we're people. Please treat us like people. And let's get over the stigma. Also featured at Recovery Day was the West Virginia Drug Intervention Institute. Their receptionist, Rhiannon Wiseman, said she was there to educate the public and lawmakers about the one box. You open it up, I can show you. Um, it's, uh, it'll walk you through an overdose step by step. That way, there, you know, a lot of people can't respond to an overdose, well, any traumatic circumstances. You know, they kind of freak out. There's no, there's no guesswork. You, it walks you right through it. Wiseman said it is important to have harm reduction resources like one box available everywhere. Overdose can happen absolutely anywhere, in homes, uh, businesses, schools, libraries, doctor's office, it doesn't matter. They, they happen everywhere now. Wiseman added that naloxone is safe for everyone and encouraged others to be trained in administering the opioid overdose reversal drug. For the legislature today, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. To date, 90 bills have been introduced between the Senate and the House on the subject of election laws. That's out of more than 2,100 overall. We've heard a lot since the 2020 general election about potential voter fraud, although numerous courts have ruled there was no election fraud that would have changed the outcome of that election. Secretary of State Mac Warner has also said there was no major election fraud in West Virginia. He has prosecuted a handful of people for election violations in the last few years.
Earlier today, reporter Brianna Heaney spoke with Delegate Josh Holstein, a Republican from Boone County, and Senator Jack Woodrum, a Republican from Summers County, to get their perspective. Hello, my name is Brianna Heaney. I'm sitting here with Jack Woodrum, a senator from Summers County, and I'm sitting here with Josh Holstein, a delegate from the 36th District. We are going to be talking about voting. Um, one, there's many, many, many issues right now that are um, have on bills that have been introduced on voting in this legislative session. One topic that has been, there's multiple bills on, is rank choice voting. Rank choice is an electoral system in which voters can rank candidates by preference on their ballots. Um, they can rank them in descending order which candidates they prefer. Around 50 American voting juris jurisdictions have now moved to rank choice voting, including some municipalities in our neighboring state of Virginia. It's considered by proponents to be an alternative to kind of the binary of Republican versus Democrat um, and to take some of the toxicity out of partisan politics. There are multiple bills in the House and Senate to outlaw ranked choice, ranked choice voting, which to be clear is not currently used in any voting district in the state. Why is there a need for those laws now? Well, as far as I'm concerned when it comes to ranked choice voting, it's easy to manipulate the, the vote and to manipulate how people rank those choices. And then there's a, a lot of difficulty with it in that it takes a, math, a mathematical formula a lot of times to figure out where people uh, are, are ranked in that formula. It's uh, also a little bit problematic. Um, pardon the noise right there. But, but it's, it's a little bit problematic in the length of time that it uh, takes for poll workers you know, to come up with the results of the election. So it could draw it out several days as opposed to having it the same night. Yeah, um, just to add to that, I think I think it's important that voters um, know who uh, or the, what the results of their elections are in a timely manner. What we saw in the last couple election cycles in 2020 and 2022 across the country, it's been a lot of cases where it's the results of the election have have trickled in day after day after day upon weeks in some states like California. Also, if you recall in uh, the state of Alaska, where they uh, use ranked choice voting. That race wasn't called for several days after the election, um, and the balance of power in our, um, you know, in our system of government in both the houses and the Senate, particularly nationally, since the country's so evenly split, uh, can really be decided, you know, on that one outcome, you know, on that one election's outcome. So I think it's crucial that voters know the results of their election and they have confidence in it, because the longer that you prolong um, and you have. Uh, you know, you prolong the uh, the declared outcome, the more room there is for doubt and concern in a lot of folks' minds. And I think it's something that we, we as a country really need to address right now is confidence in our elections. What would you guys say to proponents of ranked choice voting who say, yeah, it takes longer, but it increases the swath of um, ideas and voices who can be considered and maybe even reduces polarization in the political spectrum. That, that who, what would you say about that trade-off, time versus mm -hmm. polarization and a, a greater swath of choices? Sure. 
I would just say to that, just one quick thing to add is, um, you know, I don't think our voters should have to settle for second or third place. I think they should make the decision of the best candidate and that should be the outcome. Um, if it's in cases where, and I know ranked choice voting deals with this, where the winner is less than 50 percent, you know, it's still the plurality. Um, and I think that's how our system of government has, has, you know, long existed and should continue to do so. You know, initiating a new way of voting, that, that's going to be confusing to everybody involved. I, I don't think that does anything to restore confidence in, in voting and in the outcomes of election. So we've, we've come through an election cycle where there are you know, allegations of, that elections have been stolen, and we've had other elections that have been won by very small margins. So adding that other dimension into it, I, I think, is really going to send the country in the wrong direction. Mm. Some proponents of ranked choice voting say that it is a way for people to um, not have to vote for somebody who they feel like they're settling for. A lot of times people are stuck choosing between two candidates, one a Republican, one a Democrat, <coughs> who they don't, they don't feel like that's the person who they might put forward, but that's their only choice. Ranked choice would be an alternative to that. What would you say to those critics? or sorry, those proponents of ranked choice voting? Well, I, I don't know that it's going to achieve what their goal is. I mean, I, I understand that. I've been in a lot of elections where, uh, you know, I had to vote for the lesser of two evils. None of us want to be in that position. But I, I think as political parties go, I think both political parties have come a long ways in, in putting forward very well-qualified uh, individuals. And, uh, you know, that we had a period of time that it seemed like there were people that were just placed on the ballot but they weren't necessarily the best qualified people to be on the ballot. And I think those days are behind us. Yeah, I would just add to that and say, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to be certain um, that we have good candidates on our ballots. And I think that's an, that, uh, that is really the, the responsibility of the voter to get involved in the primary process, not just in the general election process, because, you know, the, the political parties choose their candidates that will face off in the general election. In, um, in the primary election. So I think the voters should become a little more active. If you look, we have a lot of low participation rates in our primary elections. So I think that's where that can be decided. We, we won't have to choose the lesser of two evils if we have competitive primaries and we have primaries where individuals are actually um, you know, participating at a higher rate, much like the general election. So I think we need to do more to encourage primary election voting. I th and I think that, that uh, would solve itself. And, and I would go back, you know, it is, it is the voter, he's absolutely right, but having an educated voter is extremely important. Yes. Not somebody that's, that's walking in uh, voting for name recognition, right. voting on a soundbite, that, that have actually went in there, researched their candidates, and understand what they stand for and what they're going to do when they're in office. So it, it starts at the grassroots with the voter. Um, many states are taking a second look at felons who have served time and their qualifications to vote. In West Virginia, felons may gain the right to vote back after completing prison, parole, and completing probation. However, there are some laws that have been introduced to change that. Where is the need for this? What are some possibilities for reforming felons' ability to vote in the state? Um, and what are some of the headwinds to that refor uh, reform as well? Well, I know one of those bills, I looked at it last year, uh, I did have some conversations about it, and I didn't find any interest 
outside of the group that was proposing it for doing that. They, they wanted people to uh, you know, serve the balance of their sentence and serve their probation and to, to prove that they were uh, doing everything that society expects out of them before they return some of their rights. Yeah, I would just add, I think West Virginia's system of dealing with this is, is probably one of the most superior in the country. Um, it allows for an opportunity, as you just read to us, it allows for an opportunity for those, those persons, those individuals, to receive their, you know, their rights to vote back. Um, I, I would also agree with the senator that I don't think there's much of an appetite here because I think most, most, most individuals feel that um, you know, our system here in West Virginia is obviously you know, uh, a superior system. So, I, again, I don't think there's any need to address that further in, in this legislature. So. There are bills introduced to prohibit the use of deepfakes to attributes, comments to candidates. Of course, this comes on the heels of the proliferation of artificial intelligence worldwide and its ability to its ability to be more intelligent, its ability to create things that are not real. Why is there a need for this, and what role do you think artificial intelligence is going to play in this year's upcoming election? Yeah, so that, that bill that you mentioned there is actually my bill. Um, I introduced that this year. It's going to be ran tomorrow in uh, House Technology and Infrastructure, um, according to the chairman. Um, my reason for introducing that bill is simple. We have had, and I'll give you two examples. We had a case um, in the last presidential election cycle where super PACs were running political ads on television attributing remarks to former President Donald Trump that were never recorded but that were um, alleged and published in Vanity Fair magazine. And that was the quote, losers and suckers comments that he allegedly made um, in regards to fallen vets. Now, the president had denied that. There was no recording. Everyone that was with him had substantiated his claim that he did not. Yet the super PAC used an AI voice of former President Donald Trump like it was a recording of his remarks. That, is the most, that was the most deceptive thing that I had ever seen in politics. Um, and our, you know, our voice is what makes us. It, it is the one thing that technology can't strip away that, that cannot be taken from us. And if our individual voice is going to be hijacked and altered, I think that's a major problem and it's something that voter, it's going to, it's going to uh, trick a lot of voters. Um, and the second example would be just recently in New Hampshire, in the Democratic primary up there, there was a call that went out, um, Politico reported, uh, that President Biden was recorded and it wasn't him. It was an AI, uh, you know, altered audio file of his voice encouraging voters to uh, join in the, or vote in the Republican primary for the quote lesser conservative candidate since President Biden wasn't on the ballot. Uh, the White House then had to come out and say the president did not authorize that and the Attorney General's office in New Hampshire was actually investigating that. Um, so here in West Virginia I think we need to get ahead of the ball game and uh, tackle that head on. So that's the reason I introduced that bill. It can affect both sides, and it has affected both sides dramatically. So, and, and AI, as you've seen, I mean, it's, it, it's easy enough to reproduce a photograph, but it can also do the same thing with video. So you you can push out uh, video that appears to be that individual saying whatever you want them to say, 
and uh, that, that's going to be problematic in the future. And I, and I enjoy uh, fooling with AI right now. I mean, I, I work with it almost on a daily basis. And, and there are some safeguards that the uh, corporations that are putting it out, you know, that have put in it to, uh, uh, to limit what you can and can't do. Um, and, and I think that's something that may have to be legislated at some point in the future, uh, because I think they probably limit too much. And uh, so that also goes back to the, you know, what are we, are we suppressing our ability to express our views uh, and using that technology to help us uh, uh, formulate our views to put it out to the public. Okay. Moving on to voter ID laws. Um, why is there a need for voters to have a voter ID to be able to vote? There's some more laws that have been introduced to reinforce this. Why is there a need for that in this state? Well, voter ID, you know, you need, you need to prove who you are. You just can't show up at a polling place and say, I'm John Doe and I want to vote. So you need to, you know, prove that you're the person that's on the poll book and you're voting in the right precinct. Uh, now, one of the bills we have out uh, would give uh, uh, voter registration for the for the electronic polling books would give them access to your photograph from the DMV. So if you have a state-issued ID, they would be able to see that photograph here at some point in the future, which uh, adds another safeguard so that somebody's not walking in, you know, he, he's not going to walk in and say that he's me and, you know, and try to uh, vote my ballot. And the same thing goes with, uh, you know, mail-in ballots, uh, because we, we've had people that have tried to mail somebody else's ballot in and then at the same time show up and vote in person. So we, those safeguards are in place to prevent that. You may want to speak about, um, you know, we were able to track uh, a number of these things right now. So we know if you voted in this state, voted in another state, I think you had some legislation that uh, prohibited that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure talking with you guys about voting policy here in West Virginia. Again, Jack Woodrum and Josh Holstein, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank pleasure. you. Pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it. Thank you for spending this time with us. Catch the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting covers the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and the Senate on the West Virginia channel. I'm Curtis Tate. For everyone here at WVPB, thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward.